Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone and welcome. Um, in this episode, we have a special guest. Uh, I have Marinike Giwa Onawu here with me, and um, I'm so excited to have you on. And just to give uh, people a little background, first I want to say hi. 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 <laughs> um, to give a little background, I was uh, sent your your one of your YouTube videos by a colleague of mine, and um, when she sent it to me, I uh, was I think it was like forty something minutes and I was just captivated so interesting um, and really moved and resonated with so much about um, what you said and how you said it and uh, and I think I've said this to you earlier is your vibe is really cool and I don't know how else to say that but I think as we get into this conversation other people will understand so um, so welcome thanks and uh, you know, I always like people to introduce themselves because I think you can tell your story way better than I can or from reading it. So <laughs> um, can you just, you know, say hi to my audience and let them know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. And so I'll have to preface that by saying that I'm probably one of the worst people at introductions because I never exactly know, like, how long, how short, how casual, how formal. So, um, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, so everyone, as she mentioned, I'm Marena Kay, and I'm glad to be here with you all. I am an, an advocate. I'm a mom. That's one of my, you know, the roles that I'm most proud of. I um, do a lot of work with uh, disability justice and, you know, um, racial and gender justice, as well as education. Uh, it's a kind of a bit eclectic, the things that I do, but um, really I am just somebody who, you know, I know this may sound weird, like, you know, the, the quintessential answer or stereotypical answer for a pageant is, what do you want? I want world peace, you know, but, <laughs> but I actually do want world peace. Um, I really am passionate about equity and about inclusion. And, and th those are things that for me are, are universal concepts that are important to all people and that we all deserve. And so um, a lot of my work, you know, and, and my passion is about trying to ensure that that, you know, that I, you know, bequeath a better world to my children than the one that I got when I was born. And so um, I am an exennial, so kind of like smack dab in between Gen X and millennial. So I identify more with millennial, but there's certain Gen X things that, you know, make sense. Like, you know, when people have those memes about video games or what kind of phone did you have or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I love um, Steven Universe, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Super. Um, to me, those they're concepts that um, may seem childlike, but they're really, really moving to me, the, you know, kind of the deeper core aspects of them. And then I just really love the, the illustration as well and the diversity in those shows. I um, am a, uh, I'd be in Ravenclaw. We were talking about Harry Potter's homes. <laughs> yes. And I'm an um, INFJ, if you do the uh, MBTI. And, um, yeah, I think I'm just an okay, okay, okay person. Like, I think I'm, you know, fun to be around, a little wordy, a little nerdy too, but it's all good. That's all good for sure. And I really love when you said you're not, um, fond of bios really, uh, even on your website, when you land there, you have two bios. One is like the <laughs> casual one and one is like the formal one, which I think is great. And of course I really love the informal one. Cause right. Like I think people connect to that kind of stuff a little bit more. Um, but what I did notice when I, after I watched your video, I kind of was like, Oh, I need to learn more. What do I do? I Google you. Right. Um, and so I, when I landed on your page, uh, the first quote is, I am here to open minds, to open hearts, to fill minds and to fill hearts, to change minds and to change hearts. That's why I do what I do. And it connected with me so much. And I 
thought that was such a beautiful, I mean, it is such a beautiful statement. And so that really struck me. Um, so, you know, I, I really wanted to um, bring some of your ideas and some of just the conversation that I saw in the video here to my audience. Um, so, you know, what, um, I'm curious, like, if you can talk a little bit about, I always like to talk to people about um, how they received uh, their diagnosis. And I know we're kind of jumping in right here. But um, I think if I remember, you were diagnosed a little bit later in life. Is that correct? It is correct. So um, I, I think basically, if I wasn't a parent, I probably would have never been diagnosed because, um, you know, I, I grew up during a time that um, people had, if they knew about autism at all, and a lot of people didn't, um, it, it, it had a particular quote unquote look, it presented a certain way. And if that's not the way that you presented, then you were often missed. And so um, for me growing up, I had a lot of oddities and quirks and everybody just, you know, wrote them off as one thing or another. And um, I really just, you know, so I grew up not being aware that I was on the autism spectrum, even though now in hindsight, it's it's almost comical that I didn't know um, because I was ripping, you know, all of the tags out of my shirts when I was a, you know, a young child. My mom, my mom had to sew them all the the holes in the back of all my shirts. And I couldn't wear certain socks, and I couldn't go, you know, in the restroom like I couldn't have the exhaust on because the sound and the vibration that it made gave me a headache. And um, I, you know, was echolalic and hyperlexic. And I mean, I can go on and on about so many different things, but, um, essentially I received my diagnosis in adulthood by accident. What mm -hmm. happened is, um, I'm a parent, I'm both an adoptive and uh, a biological parent. And my two younger children are the ones that are, are biological and coincidentally or not, you know, <laughs> they're both on the autism <laughs> spectrum as well. Um, so with my daughter, when she was about two, um, actually before then, but um, I, I put her in a Mother's Day Out program. So she was home with me and there were, she was different than other babies, but I thought she was different. I liked the difference. Like she didn't right. cry. She was really quiet. And I was like, good. Cause like sensory issues, you know, a crying baby sound, you know, is not the most, you know, like welcoming sound. I mean, unless it's your baby, cause you know, then the mom instinct kicks in, but right. um, you know, but she, I understood her um, and her, you know, body language and her signals. And, you know, she didn't, she was different than other children, but that was fine to me. Being that I had started my parenting journey as an adoptive parent with older kids, I didn't really have a whole lot of experience with babies. So what they were supposed to be like, I knew it was different than the things that I read. So I thought that I'd put her in a mother's day out program so she could kind of, you know, be around some other kids, socialize, make some friends and all of that. And so, um, I put her in one at our church. And I think maybe the second week that she was there, so it was like two days a week for a couple of hours. And, you know, so I dropped her off. And so um, she was just fine. Like, unlike the other kids who were screaming and crying, she just kind of almost didn't really seem to notice that I left her. And, like, <laughs> and I'd pick her up, she was fine. And so I, I remember when I dropped her off, again, about two weeks into the program, one of the um, instructors, you know, remarked to me, oh, she doesn't know her name, does she? And I was shocked. I said, yeah, I said, she knows her name. She can read. And then right. she kind of gave me that look that people give you like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> even though she literally could read, but, but you yeah. know, no one ever believes that. And so she said, we call her name and she never answers. And I said, oh, well, she doesn't really answer when people call her name most of the time. And they said, well, she doesn't really play with any other kids. I said, well, she's not accustomed to playing with anybody. All her siblings are older. And, mm -hmm. um, and they said, she doesn't really talk. And I said, well, she'll only talk if she has something to say. And they said, she's just really, really different. And she said it and, you know, like in her brow furrowed, uh, which, you know, <laughs> to me, I was like, she's concerned. And so I, I just looked at my daughter who just looked so happy and pretty and, you know, herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and so she, the other children, so I, I you know, were, were getting settled. Their parents were dropping them off. And so it just really kind of stuck with me. It just felt really odd, her concern. And I didn't understand. And so um, what I decided to do, which is something I hadn't done, is stay after drop-off and just kind of, there was this, this, you know, big window, you know, kind of place where you could kind of peek in and see what's going on. Um, right. And I decided I would do that. And I had hadn't felt no need to do that because like I said, when I dropped her off, she wasn't concerned and we had toured and visited and shadowed and all of that before she enrolled there and it was our church. So I was familiar with the place, but I stayed and I watched and, um, and like, I guess for the first time I saw my daughter in someone else's eyes 
And um, she was sitting on the floor, it was a carpeted floor, and there was this kind of gray duct tape that they used as dividers to divide the different centers. You know, here's the kitchen mm-hmm. area, here's the dress-up area, the books. And she was just running her fingers, her um, three of her fingers, her um, her pointer finger, middle finger, and ring finger up and down, you know, gently in one direction on the the duct tape, kind of feeling the texture. And I was, and I remember thinking as she was doing it, well, that looks feels really that looks really soothing. I wish I could do it, you know. But, <laughs> but she was just silently sitting by herself, cross, and she had a certain way that she would sit with her legs crossed in a certain way that she always sat and facing a certain direction. And then I looked around at all the other children, and and they were just and like talking and chattering and they were throwing um, like feather boas around each other and hats and getting dressed and coloring and <laughs> moving. And, and to me, they seemed like this huge, loud circus almost. Right. Like I was like, wrong with these kids? But then I realized, <laughs> wait, all these kids are doing this. My daughter's the only one not doing that. What's wrong with my daughter? You know what I mean? Like, right. which you now I, I wish I hadn't had the mentality of wrong with, but I just knew something was different. And so that, that I found that to be a little odd. So I did some research and then I took her to the pediatrician we took an M chat, which she promptly failed. Mm-hmm. And then we started going through all this other developmental stuff and all of the various different things that you do to rule out, you know, a diagnosis because you don't want to just jump to one or another. So, you know, all these different tests, genetic tests and blood testing and audio and this and that and this and that and IQ testing. And eventually she received her diagnosis. And um, while we were going through the process, I was researching and I started realizing a lot of things that I was like, wow, 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 wow. You know, like it really looked um, like it was going to be that diagnosis, but it was also odd to me because I was thinking everything I read, I was thinking, but I was like that as a kid. How is she autistic? Right. I was like that, but I do that. And so um, she was diagnosed. We got her into a bunch of services and she became, you know, the therapy baby and, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And then um, I, the, our, our pediatric neurologist had told me that, you know, we were going to a comprehensive autism center said that, um, you know, it's, it's often, her, you know, inherited. So you've got a little boy who's a couple, you know, not, far in age away from her and just watch him. I said, oh no, he's not autistic. He's totally different. Because once I learned, I started looking for, so she would look up at fans and spinning things and like all her different mannerisms. And I would watch him very carefully to see if he was doing any of that stuff. And he didn't seem to be. So I was like, he makes eye contact. He's good. And then, right. so, but, so, but now, sure is, enough, is he younger? He's younger than your he daughter? Is younger, yes. He's, okay. he's almost two yep. years younger than she is. So this is going through the process. So first she was, you know, so she was two, almost three, and then she became three going on four. So he's getting close to two, you know, and so I'm bringing him with him, with me to these appointments, you know, he's, you know, with me in the lobby everywhere, you know, that I go that I'm taking her and people start kind of casually observing him. And they suggested that, that, you know, he needed to be, and I was like, no, please him. No. You know, and then they started showing me that, you know, some other manifestations like, you know, he's a sensory seeker. So it looked different than she did with her audio defensiveness. And so we went through the rigmarole with him. With her, I wasn't surprised with him. He really shocked me. Like, I didn't see, I just didn't understand. I was confused. And so now I felt devastated because I was like, what the heck? You know, like, how could I, what's wrong with me as a parent that I couldn't know that, notice this about not one, but two of my children. And so I just felt really demoralized, but I just threw myself into trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, they, they put the fear of God in me about, you know, the, the window of intervention and, you know, that period of time where you've got to save them before their lives are destroyed or whatever. And (laughs) so I, you know, so they, I, you know, basically we hijacked their childhoods with all these different programs and this and the other. And I remember one day, um, you know, and sitting in one of the offices and, you know, the, um, and I was told by a particular specialist, Veronica, and I was like, yeah, have you ever been, you know, evaluated for autism? I was like, no. And the person was like, you have two children on the autism spectrum. I was like, yeah. And I was probably like stimming or rocking at the moment while she was saying that. (laughs) And, you know, she was like, and um, you say that your children are almost exactly like the way you were as a kid. I said, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm still like a lot of the things that they do now. And they were like, Mm -hmm. they're on the spectrum and you're exactly like them. And I was like, (laughs) oh. And, And she was like, I don't want to diagnose adults, but if right. I did, you, you, you being, you, you know, you, you ding, you know, every, you know, she's like, I, I suggest that you, you know, kind of go ch- get checked out. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous, but I said, okay. So I, I started hunting. There aren't as many people who diagnose adults as there are that diagnose right. children. It's really you know, challenging. It yeah. is. And so I was fortunate able to, to be able to find someone, but there was a, you know, a time period of waiting. So I, you know, got on the wait list. And in the meantime, I did a lot of research and I essentially self-diagnosed. Like I was like, wow, I like read through DSM-4, DSM-5, read all these things. And I was like, this is me. So by the time mm-hmm. I actually got the diagnosis, it wasn't a surprise, but it, it just, it made so many things make sense. I just really didn't understand how I hadn't, realized it until after the fact. 
Right. And a lot of people say that, right? A lot of people, there are, there are many people that I've talked to who are older adults and they'll say, you know, I always just knew there was something different or, um, you know, I just, I just accepted and everyone was very, and, I, and you said something earlier, you know, very supportive and accommodating parents, it sounded like you had. Yeah. Um, and you also were that supportive and accommodating parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, sometimes, you know, we just don't notice. And, and, in, and there's a beauty in that. It was a beauty in having a parent who's like, well, this is my kid, right? Like, we'll just we'll just make it work. And we accommodate and we come <laughs> up with strategies and we just kind of do it naturally yes. as a parent. Um, but sometimes we miss, you know, we miss these things. But um, as uh, as an adult, when someone gets that diagnosis as an adult, it feels for many people, it feels very validating. I, I think yes. many also have a period of wow, how did I not know? Or wow, what does this mean for me now? Some people are like, well, I'm still me, right? Like I just, yeah. I just now, now I have this extra bit of information. Um, but I think the biggest piece is validating. And um, I too have gone through all those checklists <laughs> with my son and I go, wow, I think I have a lot, I have a lot of <laughs> check off boxes myself. (laughs) Yeah, it's very interesting to me that, you know, that, you know, and so we know that neurodiversity is, you know, all humans are, have different types of minds. And so I found that even when, like, you know, with, with children, um, often if the, even if the parent is not autistic, it seems that often there is still some neurodivergence, you know, some kind of, you know, uniqueness or difference in the parents, you know, like they'll talk about the broader autism phenotype or kind of like the autism cousins, you know, like (laughs) you see that. And, and, and I think that, and in some ways it, it isn't, a lot of times it's not diagnosed if it appears to be just quote unquote the way you are or a strength or, or if your parents are accommodating my parents, you know, my mom knew that there were certain cereals I ate or certain type of shoes. And so she'd just buy up a whole bunch of them, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, know, and so she knew that there was a particular food that I couldn't, that the smell made me nauseous. So she just didn't cook that, you know, I mean, maybe she cooked it when I wasn't home or something like, but you know, so it's just, you know, people often, you know, parents, we love our kids. And so, and no, no one child is, you know, no child is the same, even identical twins. So I think that sometimes, you know, we, we're all parents accommodate their children, but sometimes I guess in, in the way, in providing the accommodations that we do to be supportive, um, sometimes that can mask the fact that there is, you know, a, a diagnosis there. And so it may, you know, it, it just, you know, it might result in the person being diagnosed later than, you know, they ordinarily would, whether it's later in childhood or if it's in adulthood. I I cried when I found out, but they were like tears of joy because I thought about Mm. all the times that I had felt like I was broken and weird and deficient and everything that was so easy for everyone else was so hard for me. And I thought about the suicide journal I started keeping at age 11 because Mm. I just wanted to die because I did not just die. I wanted to die at my own hands because I just felt like I was just such a, 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 you know, I don't know, a horrible, blasphemous, you know, entity Mm -hmm. in society. And, um, and I, you know, in true autistic form had pro and con lists about all the different ways to kill oneself and Mm -hmm. why you should do this one over that one. And okay, don't do this one because it'll be traumatizing. If your parents find your body, don't do this one because, you know, it'll take X amount of time before you die and you'll be in pain or, you know, like the extra (laughs) scenario planning, right? Like those, the different, Mm -hmm. the going down the, I guess, a a special interest at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And, and, you know, you're, you said something uh, earlier, you know, we talk about, um, and I'm actually teach and I've taught a graduate program around early identification in young children with autism and how important it is to catch things early, right? And you, you even, you hit it right on the head and we need to do all of these therapies. Otherwise you're going to miss your window of opportunity, right? To, to fix things. I'll put that in big quotes. Yeah. Um, and you said, you said we hijacked the childhood with therapies. And something I've talked about in the past is every family has to do what works for them. But we, we, we try to do so much sometimes. I often wonder what that, how that balance works. And sometimes it doesn't. I don't know if it's necessarily about balance, but, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about, or how, you know, we also miss a lot of kids in early identification, right? So it's, I, I'm, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about that balance of, okay, well, we, um, we identify early so we can do all these therapies, but the downside could be, you know, we, we take all of this time and we forget to just be a parent with our child. Exactly. And so it's interesting because 
um, although my biological children are the only ones that have, you know, autism, all of my children have some form of disability or another, or some type of, you know, hidden disability in my adopted children. So I, I had, I had, I was accustomed to speech therapy and OT and, you know, specialists and these types of things. And, you know, needing to see the dietitian from some of the different diagnoses that my older children had. Um, and then even one of them, you know, has a cognitive disability as well. So I was accustomed to some of those services in terms of special ed as well. So not just the medical, you know, and augmentative services, but also the, you know, the need for, you know, accommodations in the school setting. And, but I can tell you that it's night and day in terms of the, the autism diagnosis versus whatever other diagnoses one's child has, mm. it, it like exponentially increases the amount of hands in the pot, you know, people involved and things mm. that you need to do. And, you know, like, you know, they talk a lot about how in other countries, um, they have a higher quality of life than Americans because of our 40 hour work week and, you know, only a minimal amount of, you know, two, two week vacations and, you know, like how we, um, you know, whereas other places they have, you know, maternity and paternity leave that's longer, mm. they have a shorter work day and, and they have better outcomes. And so I think about the fact that, it's tiresome for an adult to do a 40 hour work week. And I, I'd venture to say that no adult really does a 40 hour work week. They talk right. at the water cooler to people. <laughs> they check for their phone and their email. They go to the restroom right. and stay there a little longer. You know, come on now. You know, so like, <laughs> they leave five minutes before the, the clock, you know, because no one's paying attention. So yes. we can't do that. But we're expecting developing small children. And then again, people with a developmental disability. So they're, you know, so there's a, a variance in terms of, you know, their strengths and their, you know, their the areas where they need support. We're expecting them to spend 30, 40 hours in very restrictive compliance-based therapies. And then on top of that, all, you know, other ones that you need on top of that, like it's like having two or three jobs. How are you supposed to be who you are? How are you supposed to have, and then you're supposed to implement those things into your parenting when you're not in the therapy session. So, you know, setting. So you're supposed to make sure that you do this and you say this and you don't give them this. And it just becomes like work, you you know, instead of being, you know, kind of doing, you know, what's in, and I wouldn't, I shouldn't say what's intuitive to you as a parent, because sometimes what's intuitive to us is not always best because humans are different. Our children can be different, but I just feel like it's, it's very sad. Like I feel that I look at all of my children, but, and I look particularly at the younger two and with my son, we ended up actually not being able to do as many services because um, during, you know, there was a time that we, my husband had a transition from his job to another position. And so we didn't have the same kind of insurance that we had. So whereas she had everything and, you know, you know, and all the bells and whistles and, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean? like, you know, he, you know, at one point got the, the, you know, economy car with the roll up windows, you know, in terms of services. <laughs> and, and I look at the two of them now and in terms of his level of anxiety, um, as you know, is so much lower than hers, his sense of self. And, you know, like a lot of things, I feel like all of those therapies that she got, she got quote unquote, better results. Like, she, you know, she's like the, the star child, you know, in terms of, you know, what people want to see in terms of optimal outcome, you know, um, but it impacted her in other ways that couldn't be measured on those charts internally. Right. And I feel like we have to have a balance. And I actually, at one point wrote, um, wrote a blog post about, um, you know, kind of like how as a family, we made a choice to not give her a full-time job because of autism, you know, right. in particular, we, we chose to kind of dial back on some of these things because of the fact that, you know, you, you have to play, you have to be yourself. You have to, if you're spending all this time telling somebody to be something different than what they are, what kind of a message are you sending? You know, we, we have to, there has to be a sense of, of acceptance. Yes, we all need to grow and change, but it, it you know, it, it becomes apparent at some point that the only one that's needing to grow and change is the person who isn't neurotypical, the person who's, who is autistic and it, it can be demoralizing. <laughs> right, right. And I think um, it can be really confusing and very, um, I, I don't, what's the word I'm thinking? Um, it, it's a little bit of, of shaming in, yes. in something that you can't control, right? Like it's, yes. you were designed that way. Um, and so now what, why is it that I feel like there's always something wrong with me and all these people are working with me and why are they here? And, um, and that can carry in that when they're super little, I think it, it, you can get away with a little bit more, but as we start moving into those older ages, um, yes. you know, six, seven, eight, it, yes. it, uh, it, it, you know, it, it can really impact, um, and so I'm, you know, now if we switch to, the, you know, that's the early identification piece. What about the missed 
you know, the missed identification, the missed diagnosis. And I know for me, my, my son was my first child and I did care for lots of kids, um, but some of the many were very similar. So I didn't really know. <laughs> he was like a great sleeper and, you know, very articulate. And he also yes. read early on also. And so I was like, no, he's brilliant and just... Yes. He's beautiful, right? And all these things. And then I started noting, noticing a few things. And I was like, huh, he doesn't really, he responded to his name, but like he had some sensory issues, noises, but I really wasn't yes. sure what I was seeing, right? And so I would ask like my mom and, um, you know, my mom is, so I'm, I'm Latin. So she's like, oh, it's just a boy. He's, yes. you know, he's <laughs> immature yes. and boys, boys are different. And, you know, you'll yes. have to just basically coddle him more because he's a boy and take care of him. He was like the king, you know? So I was <laughs> like, okay, okay. And that's fine. You know, of course he's yeah. smart and beautiful. So we'll yes. keep going. Um, but then when he started school, the anxiety level went really high. And yes. so that's when I noticed, okay, there's something else happening here. And we took him to a psychologist and he used the terms little professor. And, he used the <laughs> term, right? <laughs> and then he said, he definitely marches to the beat of his own drum. And I was like, ah, I know what you're telling me. And I had already started the education path. I changed careers. So I started already in the education path and was already working in an autism program by happenstance, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And then I I was like, okay, I, I hear what people are telling me now. And so we went through the whole evaluation process. Um, but again, like for me, I didn't have another frame of reference and people were telling me, no, you're ridiculous. He's smart and, you know, whatever. He just needs to be yes. baby more. Um, yes. What was your experience like, like for you, you know, being misdiagnosed? How do you think like your upbringing may have affected that? I think I'm hearing a, a lot of what you're sharing about your son sounds so familiar, um, not, you know, to, and, and even that's some things that people told me with my own kids in terms of, oh no, I think they just, you know, they're, they're throwing those diagnoses at everybody like candy type of thing, you know, that people will say, <laughs> but, you know, but I feel like, like I'm think, listening to what, you know, what your mom said and kind of like, it was the same thing I read early. Um, I, you know, and as you mentioned, there were other children that you were around who, you know, also had some traits that were non-neurotypical. So, you know, so if you saw that in your son as well, it's not a big deal. And so, you know, I was in the gifted and talented, you know, track at school. And so all the kids were <laughs> kind of quirky and weird. So it was like not a big deal. And, you know, and then it's just, you know, and then being, you know, of, you know, of West African descent, I, mean, I didn't make eye contact. Everyone's like, okay, well, you know, of course she doesn't, that's cultural, you know, which it right. is, but it also was autism, you know, too. And so I think that, um, you know, and so people, I, I feel like a lot of people who are identified, if, if, the, if someone sees an, a quote unquote educational need, um, but if it's not impacting you, you know, I guess like your, you know, in terms of your comprehension of the material, um, even though there still could be another educational need because of the social demands of being in a school setting and the sensory aspect and so many other things, but communication. But I feel like a lot of times, like I feel that my parents, like even now, and it's, it's funny because now that I know what I know, they are not formally diagnosed, but I know for a fact that my mother is autistic. I know for a fact that her father was. I know for a fact that my niece is. And um, <laughs> it's just, there is no way. I bet all $47 I have in the bank that it's the case, you know? And um, and almost sometimes, like I, originally when I started being more open about my diagnosis, um, my mother was concerned for, for some reasons that are, you know, very, very, meaningful that maybe I'll talk about later in terms of the discrimination that, you know, disabled parents face. Mm -hmm. But, um, but some of it, I think might've been like for her feeling like a sense of shame, you know, immigrant mom, you brought your kids to this country to have this good life and you, you know, poured everything into them. And for someone, for them to say they have a disability, it makes you feel like you did something wrong or you missed right. something or you didn't help. And so she would say stuff like, don't say that in Jesus name, you're perfect. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm perfectly autistic. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> thinking of that, of course, wouldn't say that even now to mom, but uh, <laughs> no back talk, but um, <laughs> not on purpose anyway. But um, so it's like, I feel that um, people, there were things that people would, so some people would say, she's too sensitive for a girl. You should spank her or you need to be tougher yeah. with this one or you need to do this or you need to stop letting her do this or why do you let her sit in there and read all the time or she shouldn't talk like that to people or, you know, like people would try to, like, I feel now like, you know, my parents defended me and, you know, but I'm wondering how much, what toll that must have taken on them because of the fact that 
I did things that I didn't realize were different and they were pathologized. So I got in trouble for correcting the teacher because, you know, teacher spelled something wrong on the board or whatever, you know, or I didn't want to, um, you know, you know, we're playing a game, you know, like a, a class game and then they're playing it in a way that's very inefficient. And I have another idea that's a better way to, to do it. And, and it really is better, but they want to do it their way for whatever reason. And I don't want to do it because it seems silly or, um, you know, nope. or we're doing, um, or, you know, just so things that, you know, um, or I'm answering a question, like rhetorical questions that I don't realize are rhetorical. So I'm answering them and it looks like I'm being sassy and rude to an adult. And so, um, you know, just these circumstances that weren't understood, they weren't accommodated because no one knew that this was autism. They thought it was just me, you know, not following the social norms. And mm. as a result, you know, your quote unquote deficiency is, is that of your parents too, as far as everyone's concerned. Um, something in your family isn't right, you know, or, or they're not raising you right, or they're not, you know, they're not putting their foot down enough. And, and so yeah. it, it can be hard because I love my parents. They, they, you know, like all parents, they're, they've got their strengths, they've got their weaknesses. I definitely, looking back, I feel like they were really strict in some ways and they're, they're leaning in other ways. And so there are a lot of things that they've done that I've implemented with my own children. There's things that, that I will absolutely not implement, but I feel like they were good parents. And it, it's hurtful to me to think about the fact that um, for simply me having the neurology that I have, for me being born the way that I am, that there should be any type of, um, you know, stigma or negativity or, or, you know, blame or, you know, put on my parents who were just doing the best they could to, to love and raise a child and keep them thriving in a world that's not made for them. Right. And I think, you know, in historically, um, from some of the research that I've done, you know, it, it was there was this whole line of thinking yeah. that it was the mom. Yeah. Right. Like it was the mom was not bonding properly with the child. And, you know, and again, I think some of that, you know, if we if we're going to get into it a little bit, it's also a very um, male lens. Yes. right? But that's, that's what we had at the time. That was what they were looking at. And I think they really didn't know what they were seeing. They just yes. used that as a as well. This is our observation. Um, fortunately, you know, there's been a lot more <laughs> research done since then. But, um, and you know what's what makes me sad. Sorry, I'm interrupted. It's just no, that revelation that I had is when they're talking about the refrigerator mothers and saying these mothers aren't bonding. I'm thinking, if anything, probably these mothers were giving their children space. Like if you have a child who's got who's really really sensory defensive and they don't like to be hugged or touched or the hair to be you know tousled or whatever, and if some mom is giving the child the space that they need because the child to show love, the mom might be a hugger. The mom might wish she could just you know wrap her kid in her arms all the time and and you know play with his hair or her hair, but cannot because that, that will set the child off. So and a right. person's observing the fact that the mom is not um, in, engaging with the child in the way that a neurotypical mom and neurotypical child would and is, is assigning, you know, blame to that when that very well might be the mom, you know, you know, yielding and accommodating for the best exactly. interest of her child, even maybe against what would, what she would want to do. Exactly. And I think that also um, you know, the other piece that I had that just came to me while we were talking was we talk about the, you know, yes, academically, maybe many, uh, many people that are missed is because academically they're able to stay connected. But this there's this social piece that yes. was missed for a really long time, which now I think, you know, educationally uh, they're starting to pick up on. We really need to focus on the social piece as well as the academic yes. stuff. It's not more so. Um, but, you know, from a from a cultural perspective, right, social acceptance or what uh, the social norms are that are expected can vary from not yes. just you know, culture to culture, but from family to family. Yes. You know, and Absolutely. I think it's it's when we say, oh, is the child doing these checkoff lists well according to who is that the right exactly <laughs> is that the right checkoff list you know I don't know yeah, so I don't know did that play into maybe some of um and I know I've heard you talk a little bit before about um a, a misdiagnosis because of gender and because of race and because of cultural background yes yes and so like I have an alphabet soup of diagnoses and I've, <laughs> I've learned that some of these are you know it's kind of like the the you know the the classic you know stair step towards your autism diagnosis that it often seems to be thrown upon women of color you know first it's this 
this. Oh, no, no, it's really this. Oh, it's this, you know, so they're seeing certain elements of your, you know, of your behavior. And so, you know, they're thinking, oh, and sometimes you might very well have multiple things going on, you know, you know, as that's life, you know, but sometimes they're looking at someone's anxiety and they're thinking, you know, OCD, is it OCD or is it because the person is needing, you know, is it because we have a need to have, you know, some kind of, you know, normalcy and routine in our lives. And it appears that way. Is it, you know, what the, you know, what they used to say in the DSM four is quote unquote, restrictive, repetitive behavior and stereotypy. Yeah. Is it that, or is it our STEM, you know, or is it like, you know, is, you know, what is the, you know, are, are these things that you're seeing, you know, some of these characteristics are hallmarks of autism. And so you give the person three, four different separate diagnoses when really it's just the one that, um, you know, would encompass all of them, but you just don't notice it. And people, I think they also don't realize how much people have to, um, I guess, scan their backgrounds and adapt to the environment, you know, so even the person who seems like they're not um, fitting in or whatever, like they're, you know, clasping their hands or their ears or they're rocking or they're loud. They have no idea what else that person might be suppressing to even be in that setting, you know, in, around these people. And, you know, like, it's like, it's so much work. Like, you know, I, my mind is like literally just a never ending flow chart. Um, Cause that's what you have to have to, ex- you know, exist in a neurotypical world. When you see this person, how long do you look at them before you look away? When do you speak? What do you say? What do you not say? You know, you've got to find the right thing and, and shove it in the right box because otherwise you can't really just say what you think or what you feel or move the way you think or you feel or people get weirded out. And that's not right. the way life is designed to be. But I think that unfortunately the check boxes are looking for and 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 anyone you know a lot of people if you want to survive in this world even if it doesn't feel right you'll learn whatever it is that you need to do to just blend in and 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 be hidden and so you don't stand out so that you're not bullied or or harmed in some way and so you'll watch the social people and you'll mimic what they do even if it doesn't feel natural or whatever you know to so just kind of get by yeah and i think you know as you're saying that i'm thinking um wow, yeah, you, you do what you can to try and get by. But, um, you know, we're talking about not just those with autism, but with all, you know, with differences and other disabilities yeah, who are yeah. already a vulnerable population yeah. right? or, or at risk. Very much so, you know, and so there's, so there's that element of, you know, people already are at risk. And then if you're, if people are trained to feel that they need to suppress the way that they think or that the way that they are, or that, um, or they're gaslit into thinking that they're overreacting or they shouldn't say anything about this or that this is okay, or, you know, or it, it, you know, the rules don't really apply to me. People, other people, you know, will get respected or understood or, you know, or treated in this way. And I, for me, it's this way. You're just really, you know, it, it creates a situation that's ripe for disaster in terms of, of possible abuse. Like, you know, I think about my daughter, you know, even though she could read well, you know, like I said, her speech was functional echolalia. So she would quote something from, you know, Nickelodeon or whatever, but it was totally appropriate to the situation. So it's clear that she understood, you know, and, um, or her, or she'd use body language or point or get at whatever she needed. But, um, I didn't have her in a daycare setting because of the fact that I was like, how would I know if somebody did something to her? Cause she doesn't communicate in the same way that other people do. So, you know, I, I don't have the faith that she's going to come and say such and such tried to do such and such and such to me, you know, that's just not the way she communicated. And so, but even as an, you know, a teen and an adult, I think some of the ways that I tried to um, make life easier for me, you know, it's while dying inside at the time was, you know, so either, you know, again, get some, you know, get a crowd, a group around you. So some really, really social people who you may not even like, you know what I mean? Because they're really, maybe not really the greatest people or they're loud or, but, but, but it's, but you hide again, you have a crowd, you have a group. And so you are, you, you blend in and you're unseen. So you're not a target or you're yourself and maybe you have hardly any friends or you have one friend and that makes you a target or you are the person who does everybody's homework for them. So, you know, and, and helps them out and tutors everybody. So everybody likes you, but you don't really want to do it, but you don't know what else to do. You don't really know how to say no. And they keep asking and it's so easy for you. Um, or you get a boyfriend because that's like a total social shield. You know, now you don't have to <laughs> say no about going to places or you have somebody to walk down the hall with, even if you don't really like him either. But just because it just kind of, again, it just kind of, it's like your neurotypical, your shield from the neurotypical world. You're, you know, um, you know, and, and it's just, and, and meanwhile, you're really just wish you could just be who you are. Um, but it's too dangerous. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, as you're saying that in looking at the people around you, you surround yourself with the right people in quotes, you know, that where you would feel like, okay, well, I'll be accepted by this group. And then other people will see me as part of this group. Uh I think um, something I heard you talk about uh, in one video was, you know, looking at other people in your family as far yes. as as role models, right? And like, okay, well, how am I supposed to behave? And I'm, I'm resonating really yes. deeply during this conversation with how I I kind of look to, okay, so how did, how does my mom do that? Or how did she do that? Or how did my grandmother do this? Or how did my yes. mother-in-law do this? And, and sometimes it just doesn't resonate, right? Because it just doesn't yes. feel right. Um, and, you know, can you share a little bit about your, you know, kind of defining who you are by looking at the people around you that you grew up with and that you love and um, have been very supportive, but maybe doesn't always fit right? Yes, exactly. Like, so there's some of it that's kind of personal and some of it's just kind of like when I think about community, you know, as a whole. So, you know, although I am, you know, of, of African descent, I was raised in the U.S., so I consider myself African as well as African-American. And so there's that kind of dynamic of there's, you know, so growing up, you know, to me reading, I, I, I really, really... Um, you know, admired um, the people in the civil rights movement. And I really, really admired people who, you know, luminaries and then even regular everyday people. And then just some people um, we, you know, financially we struggled, we were working class. And so um, a lot of the people around me, you know, the, the single mom who's, you know, holding it mm-hmm. together for her, her family and, you know, whatever, you know, like these, these people to me that were just like unsung heroes. And I looked at the people who had, would be, you know, who were dealing with tremendous, tremendous adversity, and yet they seem to be so resilient and so, you know, and now I understand, you know, later, you know, the, that a lot of times people are suppressing things, you know, things, you know, because they feel like they have to have this facade of strength or, or what, you know, it's just what, you know, again, survival yeah. and life should be more about thriving than just surviving. But um, I'm looking at people who, you know, you know, I'm like, I, how could I be that? Like, I'm looking at this person who's holding everything together. They're the pillar of the rock that everybody comes to. It seems to have the answer. Even when everything's falling apart, they're stoic and they're strong, you know, or they've got, or they're so organized. Like my mom kept the neatest house. You could eat off the freaking floor. You know, she was just, I was like, you know, she, she, came to a foreign country, you know, um, raised children, went to college, worked a full-time job, supported her family back home, you know, was involved, you know, in, in, you know, in the community and church, you know, later in life and things of that nature. And, and I can barely keep, you know, (laughs) find my keys, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, and so you're looking at these people, you know, holding down a full-time job and cooking and this and that, and, and, and I'm thinking, I just don't have the bandwidth and, you know, like, and thinking specifically about like communities of color, you know, and and we, you know, we lived in the Midwest, but I, you know, was primarily raised in the South where we moved later. And I'm looking at, okay, I can't be this person that, you know, like the, you know, this matriarch that everyone, you know, relies upon that always has the right answer that always, you know, this this person you turn to when things fall apart and you can there, you know, I just, it's not me. I can't, I'm not, I can't pull everybody together for Sunday dinners every, you know, every week. I can't even, you know, (laughs) you know, I don't have the capacity. And so like, you look at these qualities that you want to have, like for me as a woman, like I, you know, I love to, you know, like thinking about women and, empowerment and strength and overcoming. But sometimes I, you know, and I feel like, you know, definitely I feel like I have a sense of strength, but sometimes things are hard and sometimes I just freaking fall apart and just can't do it. And, you know, so it's like you, you find yourself with this, almost this push pull where you are who you are and that's okay. And that's, you know, you've got, you know, beauty and you've got brokenness, but at the same time, if you aren't meeting what society says a success is, society says an adult is, society says the way you're supposed to be as a parent or a woman, if, you, if that's not the way you're, you're living your life, you know, you feel, you know, less than. Um, yeah. I don't have, you know, I, I don't bake and have my kids out there doing organic gardening and, <laughs> you know, um, you know yoga and, we, you know, like all these things that I see people, you know, like, you know, especially during this pandemic, the things that people have learned how to do, I'm like, okay, we do a whole lot of screen time. That's, you know, kind of our life. Like we haven't remodeled the kitchen and, you know, all these (laughs) things that people are doing. And it can really just make you feel like, you know, and and I think those comparisons can be dangerous because we're not looking at our own excellence and our own abilities and our own uniqueness. Um, We're, you know, we're looking at, uh, we're trying to measure um, a fish by how well they can fly. 
Right. And it really, it really, uh, it emphasizes inadequacy, right? That yeah. feeling of I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm less than, just like you said, uh, instead of focusing on what it is um, that is beautiful about us. And uh, it is a message I started early on during the whole, you know, <laughs> COVID quarantine thing. Um, but I think it's interesting. It comes, it's come back again, because I think, you know, we're now six months in it. it well, it's not March yeah. anymore. Now we're into September. Yeah. And um, I think it's just uh, something that we need to be reminded of. And that when we look at other role models. I once had a therapist tell me, well, why don't you look to other mothers that um, mm. you resonate with? And, and uh, you know, not to go against your own mom or sure. your mother-in-law, but how do you see other mothers interact that might be, um, might fit more for you? And, yes. and that was a really interesting exercise because I had never thought of it that way, right? Like, oh, mm. I guess I could I could do that. And I think a lot of it is this, this exploration of defining yourself. Through, yes. Right. Like, uh, uh, and, and I don't it's know. Something we've started to do, like, I think about like, you know, there's, uh, so if, if there, there's a lot of boxes that I couldn't check off in terms of quote unquote quality time with children. But then I think about the fact my children and I will sit here and script a, a whole episode of Dragon Ball Super, or we'll all <laughs> be on something where I'm stimming rhyming words. So I'm like, you know, sing, thing, and then they're jumping in with ring, you know, and wing, <laughs> you know, or whatever, or, you know, or we're, you know, or we're doing a vocal stim, you know, of something, you know, repeating something, you know, some fun echolalia that someone said, or someone mm -hmm. did, or we're um, drawing things or like, you know, whatever, like I'm just thinking about the things that we do that, you know, like we have our moments or our bonding things that we do that's fun for us or things that we'll watch, you know, binge watch or we'll info dump with each other, you know what I mean? Like, you right. know, and sit and, you know, and so you're sitting silently while they talk for 15 minutes about something they like, and then maybe you talk about 15 minutes or something like instead of reciprocal <laughs> conversation. And so it's kind of like finding different ways to do things. Like we don't do birthday parties, um, you know, like big birthday parties where everybody comes, but we do our own thing that's meaningful and, you know, and that we enjoy. And so we've, we, you know, we found our groove and our, our rhythm and it may not look like the quintessential, you know, or stereotypical way that people do it, but it, it's, it's, it's works for us. It's golden for us. Right. And I think that, I mean, I think that's a good, um, you know, I always ask people like, what's one good message? And I would say it, it feels like that might be it, which is you have to do what's right for your family and for the individuals involved, because everyone is so unique and, you know, neurotypical, neurodivergent, neurodiverse, really. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone has their own thing. And I think it's being respectful and honoring what each person's needs are and what they bring to the table and how they might need to be supported. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, um, it's really a, a good way to think about things, whether it is that, you know, early intervention or whether it is like the birthday party or how do you uh, connect with other people, you know, whether it's, um, I think you, you wrote somewhere you prefer texting conversations, you know, small yes. talk. And, you know, yeah, I think absolutely. that's, you know, and, and, you know, speaking of family, like if I have small talk with my mom, that's not like her preferred way, but if for me, yes. it's my preferred way. <laughs> so we kind of have to meet somewhere in the middle, right? <laughs> yes. And it, it's interesting because my mother-in-law likes to talk, like she likes to physically talk. And for me, if I could never pick up my phone and use it, like literally days will go by my, you know, I have people I haven't heard their voice in years. We text all the time though. Like, you right. know, like, <laughs> you know, and so it's almost, you know, and it's not that, and sometimes phone calls are enjoyable. They just take a lot of, uh, you know, they sap a lot of energy. Okay. So yes. I realized at one point that, you know, so my husband, I can tell he's, he's learned, he knows my love language. So he knows that when I'm texting and that I'm really communicating, I'm giving, I'm, you know, I'm really connected. He doesn't, you know, like, so if it's during the work day, I'm, I may not pick up the phone at all and call him, but I'll text him and so forth. So he's learned my kids will be in the same house. Ones I'm, they're upstairs. I'm not actually yelling for them to come down and bring me something. I'm going to text them. <laughs> tell them to get it. But I realized like with my mother-in-law um, that, so it's like even in adulthood, you have to kind of learn and grow, you know, uh, as, you know, and so I realized that she, I'm thinking she knows me and she knows I like texting. So I'm texting her, but she's not feeling supported or connected. Yeah. So I realized that I'm going to have to kind of, Buckle down and make a phone call every now and again. <laughs> like, you know, like you said, meet in the middle so that, she, you know, so she, so her needs are met and mine. You know, she's responding to my text. She's, you know, she's connecting in my way. I have to, you know, if the relationship is important, you know, inconvenience myself to, con to connect in her way too.
Yeah. And and I think that's a, a great piece because um, that's what it's all about. I think that's what all relationship is about, about all, all types of connection, regardless of, you know, where you're coming from is hearing the other person, meeting them where they're at and them, them kind of meeting you where you're at, too, and finding where that balance is. Exactly. It's helped me a lot at work, too. I've noticed that in advocacy because so one thing that I do, like growing up, I had pretty much no, to my knowledge, um, you know, visible um, examples of, you know, what it's like to be an, an adult with a disability or, or, you know, whether it's a mm-hmm. developmental disability or a physical one for the most part. I think probably maybe college was the <laughs> first time that there were, you know, people that were really present in my, in my life in terms of educators. Um, who, you know, identified themselves as, as disabled or who were noticeably so. And so um, I think about the beginning of the semester, like I go over the syllabus and, you know, there's the, you know, the boilerplate, you know, language about disability that you have to put in there. And so I always personalize mine and I tell my students that I have a disability myself and that this is the law. These are accommodations, you know, under the law that are for all of us that, you know, we are all entitled to, whether it's a student, an employee or what have you, and that, you know, we are, you know, we're entitled to them. We can use them when we need to. We don't need to. That's fine. There's no shame. It's just simply another, you know, resource that our tax dollars pay for. And, you know, I also give them multiple options to turn things in. So I don't do, so I'll do group projects, but I also give people the opportunity for individual, because some people's social anxiety, they can't do a group project. You know, or I'll let people, if you don't want to present in front of the class for something, I'll let you turn it in. You can type things. You know, I even had a student one semester who you know, basically the way he did, we had written reflections, but, you know, that was challenging for him. So he would come and do an, like a, an oral reflection with me. He'd set up appointment time every week to, and he'd answer the questions and do the work, but he'd do it aloud with me. So I give them different options. I've noticed how I've never seen, until I started being open about, you know, my diagnosis, did I see so many students who would say, you know, oh, I, I'm dyslexic. Oh, I have ADHD. Oh, this. Like, because mm-hmm. it's not a shameful thing because someone they see as an authority figure is saying that they have it too. And they're seeing this person is still living their life, you know, and, and I don't, um, right. you know, hide. So like some my students, I have stimming devices on my desk. And, you know, sometimes I, I held class with the lights off, you know, like, and the windows up because the, the fluorescents are giving me migraines. And so they see me in my strength, handling my business. And then they also see the fact that I need, I don't pretend to have it all together at all times. And I feel like it's empowered them. I, I really have seen growth um, in them to, for the first time in some people's lives, to feel like they can be themselves and it's okay. Hey there, this is Ily again. And I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a moment and let you know that in addition to bringing you great interviews and content here on the Autism in Real Life podcast, I also offer online courses, workshops, and customized coaching. So if you're a family member, an educator, or a part of an organization looking for support or autism education, I would love to work with you to help meet your specific needs. Check out my website at thespectrumstrategy.com or email me at ilia, I-L-I-A, at thespectrumstrategygroup.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. So I look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Right. Right. No, it's definitely and and seeing how uh, I think I've I've heard from a lot of young adults that I've worked with is seeing how other people problem solve and work yes. through, um, you know, and self advocate and take care of themselves. Yes. It's it's a new way of modeling, just like we were talking about before. That I can look at and say, oh, that's a good strategy. Maybe I could try that next time, you know, exactly. or I can think about a different way to um, to approach something that I'm I'm having trouble with. So I. I think that's, uh, I think that's awesome. Um, I wish all educators were doing that. I know there are many out there doing it, um, but yes. I think it's it's important to kind of be open and share uh, personal, you know, things when appropriate, so that people yes. can connect with you and get that, you know, build that uh, rapport with them. Yes, and I also understand that, it, like you mentioned, when appropriate, because in some circumstances it isn't safe. Um, to do so sometimes the the retaliation that you can get, you know, ableism is sadly alive and well in, you know, in this society. And so sometimes, you know, it isn't that a person isn't comfortable sharing, but it just isn't, you know, in in their best interest to do so. And, and hopefully that will change in the future, but that is the world we live in where right now, um, you know, going stealth for a lot of people is the safer way. 
Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and I'm I'm curious because I know as we as we're moving into um, these are some of the areas that you're very passionate about and that you advocate about. So can you talk a little bit about um, the advocacy work that you do and what your passions are there, so that people can find and learn more about that? Sure. So I I try to, I do a lot of collaborative advocacy. So I'm involved with um, you know several organizations. Um, I just finished a term um, on the Autistic Self Advocacy Network, which is one of the larger grassroots um, autistic run um, policy organizations. And I'm involved also with the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network, formerly the Autism Women's Network, which looks at um, things related to you know. Um, gender minorities. So they talk about a lot about the fact that, you know, you know, people who are male are diagnosed four times more than anyone else. And therefore the services and the understanding, um, you know, and research for, uh, you know, for others is kind of lacking. So um, I do, you know, work in that capacity in terms of programs. Um, we do, you know, programs, some public speaking education where um, we've done a couple of anthologies actually. So we've tried to, we're working, we've done some collaborative research work with some organizations about like, you know, community participatory research and partnering with with stakeholders and, you know, our perspective and our, our meaningful leadership. But we also have tried to share the voices. So, um, um, in collaboration with, um, you know, Lydia Brown and Iyash Kanazi, um, I um, helped to co-edit an anthology on race and autism. It's called All the Weight of Our Dreams on Living Racialized Autism. And so all of the contributors, there's more than 60. It's a pretty hefty anthology. Wow. Yes, yeah. we talk about, you know, so from poetry to personal stories to um, you know, a, a few interviews to some artwork. We have a, a small child, you know, that's elementary age. And then we have a great grandma, you know, <laughs> in that's there. So, uh, Everyone, you know, from indigenous to Latinx to Asian American to, you know, all, you know, um, individuals who are black and biracial and multiracial um, from different countries are, you know, everyone in the book is kind of sharing their, their experiences. And um, right now we're also working on a, uh, an anthology that will be, and it's called, um, you know, Sincerely Your Autistic Child. And it's talking about acceptance growing up in identity. And so it addresses race, but also some other things it's kind of addressed to parents as kind of like, um, you know, like almost like a, an open journal of sorts of what people wish their parents would have known or um, what people, they would like people to know, what, what to keep doing, what to think about doing. It's kind of like an in, insight into um, our world. And so I'm engaged in that work as well. Um, I also am the grant selection chair for the Autistic People of Color Fund. Um, this is a, the brainchild of, of Lydia Brown as well, who's with um, our network. And it is a, a micro grant program for autistic people of color. So there's a lot of programs. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. There probably need to be a lot more. But there's yeah. some programs out there that, you know, provide like respite or, you know, funds or support when people need help. But they're often so um, challenging. Like the, you know, there's all this bureaucratic red tape and things that, you know, you find your diagnosis, turn this in, have these references, yeah. this, paper, this address, this, you know, like I can't, again, I can't find my keys half the time, you know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're trying to fill out things for assistance or support or help. And it's sometimes those, all those things that gatekeeping can keep people from getting support. And so the purpose of this program is it's a small community run program, all volunteers, no one takes a salary from it. And basically people can apply for support or help between $100 and $500. So if, you know, if someone, let's say I'm, my name is, is George, I'm 12, I'm autistic, and I really want, um, you know, a weighted blanket, you know, maybe I can apply for this program to get help, you know, for it. I or, see. you know, Great. I want to go to a conference or, you know, I've got to pay, you know, car note is behind or whatever, you know, because it's, you know, so, you know, so we have that fund and that we meet on a monthly basis to <laughs> review applications and provide support for people. Um, during the COVID period, we've been hitting the ground really hard with fundraising and we've actually dispersed um, over $20,000 in just the year 2020. <clears throat> That's amazing. That's great. Families, yes. Um, and so things, and then um, I do some work also. So like, you know, you mentioned my work is intersectional. So I do work also with um, the, you know, in, in research. And so with some NIH research with like HIV prevention and, and treatment and looking at um, like vulnerable groups such as youth and communities of color and so forth and ways to bring their voices into research and to, you know, impact um, the design, the retention and the, the results of research. 
Wow. So it's funny when we go back to our earlier part of our conversation where, um, oh, I can't do Sunday dinners every week and I can't. <laughs> well, I think you just shifted it <laughs> to a different to a different passion. <laughs> Maybe it's you know, I, I tell it's interesting because I feel that um, for me, all of those things to me are kind of like a special interest, really. And I know there's some people who despise the word special interest, um, but, you know, like a passion. So, like, you know, I've noticed that I, I, I hope that, you know, society is moving toward learning that we don't have to pull people away from the things that they're really into. If we can find a way to make, you know, often those tra- those can be transferable skills for something that really brings a person joy. If it's not a career, maybe something else, you know, in, in you know, if someone's really, really into, you know, the type yes. of rubber hose that you use for the back of a washing machine, that knowledge yes. could be very important. You have no idea where that, you know, what, what that could do for them, where that could be, how that could be utilized as a strength for entrepreneurship or just for, I don't know, connecting with someone in somewhere, what it can do for them. Um, Often people will say, oh, well, he's only into, you know, great white sharks or, oh, all she talks about is, you know, Star Wars or whatever. Don't, you know, and good. Thank God they found something that they like. Thank <laughs> God they find something that they're passionate about. You know, you, you want that you take that away and what, what's left? Because we love hard right. and we love when we're right. interested, we're all in. We don't do things, you know, tepid and halfway. And so, you know, I just right. I, I hope we're moving toward a time where people aren't shamed for their interests, even if they seem odd, like, I guess it's quote unquote, socially acceptable for me to be um, passionate about advocacy and helping people, um, you know, and, and but, and, you know, by coincidence, but maybe it's less socially acceptable for me to be an adult woman with, with kids who wants to, you know, who will binge watch all the, the Dragon Ball Z and Super episodes and Steven Universe, but I love that stuff. And, you know, and it's important to me and I, it does. <laughs> Right. And it brings you joy. I think that's right. So if we look at things that bring one joy and, um, you know, pleasure and passion, like that's, that's part of living the life too. It's not just about what other people um, think we should be enjoying or think, you know, regardless of neurology. (laughs) It's about what makes us happy. A lot of things, um, you know, I, I had a friend who used to call me the accidental activist because a lot of this stuff just kind of happened by accident for me. Like I, noticed there weren't a lot of voices that were speaking about this thing. So I just decided to say something about it, you know, or whatever, or do something about it. And, mm-hmm. and it just kind of happened. It was, it was really informal and it just kind of just started to grow and grow. It wasn't because um, I, right. you know, sat down and had a focus group and figured out all this stuff. And, you know, it was just kind of like, I jumped in, you know, and it just happened to work. But, you know, I, I feel that there, <laughs> you know, it, it's just so much, people don't realize how much knowledge is around them and, and how much, you know, we all can be gentler to one another and be more authentic in our lives. We're not all autistic, no, but we all can be more authentic in some way. And I've had people say, oh my gosh, I've always wanted somebody to say that, or no one said that, or I was thinking that too, or what have you. And, you know, when I'll say something like, "Um, I'm sorry, can you put captions up because I process better, you know, through auditory, or can we, is there a way to dim these fluorescent lights? They're they're hurting my eyes. Or is it okay if people move around during the presentation, or are we allowed to take restroom breaks, or, you know, whatever, or um, meetings, you know, so like, I'm just very fortunate in that I have a, 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 I'm sorry, a supportive employer in that um, I, we have, you know, like meetings, weekly meetings and um, regular departmental meetings. And it's been a standing thing that I sometimes can't physically go. Sometimes I'm just overwhelmed. You know, I'm teaching multiple times a day. And sometimes I just can't sit in the, that conference room with my colleagues. I might be in my office in the same building, but I'll call into the meeting and participate virtually. And, you know, if I don't have much speech, I might just type into the chat box. And so when COVID happened, and that had to be other people's circumstances, not because they were autistic, but because they have barking dogs or loud kids or whatever, you know, it was something that no one had, no one blinked an eye. No one was like, oh, that's so unprofessional that their camera's off or that they're typing because <laughs> I had already kind of normed that. Um, and I needed it as an accommodation. And these people didn't need it for the same reasons, but it was something, you know, being inclusive and, you know, right. a, a providing multiple ways of doing things, you know, this type of universal design and access helps us all, no matter whether, what type of neurology that we have. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think with that said, I think that is a good place for us to um, kind of pause. And I hope that at some point we can uh, have another conversation and talk about, you know, something else and, and catch up again. Thank but you. I really and appreciate I appreciate you this hosting this podcast. And you've, um, it's just amazing. Spent and shared uh, here with us. So um, they, it, my website and is. And so, if people uh, want to find out more then, about um, you, where like the can two, they go? Um, last initials of my last name. So it's Morenike G O. So it's spelled like more Nike M O R E N I K E G O dot com is my website. Um, I'm at Morenike G O on social media, and um, they um, to find out anything more about. So from those links, you can find out about the um, the anthologies or the Autistic People of Color Fund. But in general, if you want to learn about you know, like, again, I know this is not just autism specific, but because that's my world, I'm kind of just talking about it. Um, autismandrace.com is a place where you can find information about the the fun that I mentioned, as well as the, um, the <laughs> anthology about autism and race. And then there's also links to some other people, um, autistic people and some uh, other neurodiverse individuals of color and the work that they're doing. Um, so I'd recommend that. And then awnnetwork.org is um, the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. And we do a lot of, you know, um, cross-disability work, but especially autism and gender. And so you're welcome to check out anything that I do there as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.